Hello, and welcome to Final Show Films. I'm the executive producer here, John Bates, uh, and I've got a few pre-show notes for you. First of all, I'd like to thank our $25 tier supporters, Antitonic, Cat Waterflame, Samantha Bates, and Maureen Monty, without whom we wouldn't be able to do much, uh, especially not all the content that we put forward now. I also want to thank all the people that have joined on with us since the, I would say, successful uh, experiment that was Midsummer Night's Dream. If you're interested in that, go check out our YouTube channel, where youtube.com slash Sinstaku, where we performed the world's first, as far as we're aware, live stream production of a community theater uh, performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That sounds like a lot of qualifiers. It's more just because that's the way I talk. Please go enjoy them, give us feedback, let us know if you'd like to see more of that in the future. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on our Patreon page at patreon.com fsfilms. You can also follow us on Twitter at Final Show Films or follow me personally at John A. Bates for all future updates and live notifications for our live stream. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 40, wherein we're talking about Critical Role, episode 39, Omens. I'm John, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and I'm joined today by Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hello, my name is Jeremy. I am at JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And I just had that particular kind of brain fuck moment where, you know how when somebody says a thing after you said a thing and your brain says oh didn't you just say that for some reason i feel like i said jack's twitter handle when i said mine i don't think i did i'm pretty sure you didn't we can we can fix it in post if we need to (laughs) i mean we can but we won't we won't but we could it is a possibility one that will not occur uh she said i don't know why my jack said his twitter handle and my brain went oh yeah you just said that (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, I hate when that happens. Um, yes, t- this week we're talking about Critical Role Episode 39, Omen. Uh, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Uh... And this episode is a fairly important episode for a variety of reasons that we'll get into as we go through it, but I want to bring up beforehand, this is the episode that aired before Wizard World Portland, in which most of the current Final Show Films crew met one another. For the very first time. Excluding excluding the folks that are all here in Georgia for the very first time. Yep. This is is when the West Coast contingent made the connection. Yeah. we, uh, we, William and I drove cross country, which is a bad idea, from Georgia to Portland, uh, from Atlanta, Georgia to Portland, Oregon, um, uh, and watched this episode on the road. <laughs> yep. But that was where you met me, you met Jeremy, yep. we met Aaron, we Aaron. met Cody. Yep. And I th- there's a couple other people. That's where Sp- Spencer, who plays in the uh, Spencer, was there. Yeah, Spencer was there as well. Yep. Um, and I 
probably a couple other people. But oh, yeah. yeah. A couple of, I mean lots of other people, just a couple other well, yeah. people that are final true films specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. It was I, I think I remember the con. There were like twelve people there. There were twelve people at the entire yeah, con. There were and... totally twelve people. <laughs> that would have been Wizard World twenty seventeen, not twenty. Yeah. I'm yeah. just saying <laughs> I enjoy the con and you know, Wizard World reps don't disinvite don't 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 deny my press approval next year but i enjoyed the con but it went a little downhill in 2017 before coming back up last year this year yeah, uh, yeah that was 2016 so we've yep. we've mm-hmm. almost known each other for three years yep, yep. Uh-huh. months it only feels like 17 it only right. feels like forever anyways when last we left off with Critical Role, uh, they fucked around in somebody else's house. Because and, a bard told them to. And had other people fucking around in theirs. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing. Um, found themselves in an old dra- in the, the lair of an old enemy uh, who was a blue dragon uh, who went under the name General Krieg. I think it was, yes. Yep. Uh, and we ended off with them facing off against a giant purple worm. Purple worm, those of you that aren't familiar with the D&D lingo of purple worm, is not a worm. It's more of a... You know, for any of you out there that have seen the movie or the movie series Tremors. Or Dune. Or Dune. Think like sandworm or graboid kind of worm, not yeah. fishing Graboid, uh, by the way. Worm is also the name of my Imagine Dragons cover band that o- specifically only covers Smoke on the Water. I was going to say, I was going to say it's the name of my Fallout Boy cover band that pretty much only does Prince homages. That's also good. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, but yeah, so perform giant fuck off worm, uh, and they proceed to engage it in fisticuffs. And by engage it in fisticuffs, I mean panic the fuck out. Uh, Keyleth uses a six level spell to turn everybody into gas. Yep. <laughs> which uh, was which was a fan which was which incepted a fantastic sequence amongst the the viewing public. <laughs> yep. Of once again, everybody shits on Keyleth for no reason. I mean, it, I mean, they had a reason this very- time. <laughs> Yeah, it was over the top. But <laughs> it was over the top, yes. But it also no, this is a this is an important bone because I don't think I I think it's fair to say that most people never gave a shit about that spell. And now everybody knows how it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. true. It was an educational moment in the DM yes. community. <laughs> <laughs> everybody knows how Windwalk works now. <laughs> I think no, this... motherfucker, it takes a minute to cast, and you can't do fuck all except run really fast. You know what? You know what? It was certainly a lesson in remembering to read your spells. Right. <laughs> yeah. Read, reading the spell tells you what the spell does. Mm-hmm. Which honestly brings me to my first point that I wanted to discuss is how do you handle mistakes in storytelling? And granted, this will change from media to media and not but i mean yeah that that's a wide question yeah um 
It does. It absolutely depends on the medium. If we're talking about, if we are talking about, and I'm assuming we're not talking about like during, um, during like during the writing process, because then the obvious answer is go back and fucking fix it before right. it gets before it gets <laughs> goes to press, right? <laughs> but I, a I, goddamn I think, editor, I that's think, what uh, you do. I think a primary example of this is actually going back to Indiana Jones. Um, when uh, I, I can't remember which which movie it was, two of them are the same movie. Um, but uh, fuck you, no, they're not. <laughs> Um, there are th- uh, all three Indiana Jones movies are amazing. They are, they yes. are. It's just two of them in the same all movie. Three. Two of all them, three legitimately. Of them. Yeah, all three of them. Two of them legitimately. I constantly confuse for the other because they have so many similarities. Um, okay, are you talking about the plot hole of him hanging outside the submarine? No. At- Travels across the Atlantic no. Ocean. No. Legitimately, the one legitimate pure plot hole. Oh, yeah. that, that, he hides on the outside of a submarine. No, the then one the I'm... submarine crosses the Mediterranean. He's still on the outside of the submarine. He's got and really good. Guys. He's got really good grip. Um, and dry lungs. <laughs> but uh, no, no. What I'm talking about is, I think it was the first one where he's they're in a desert scene. Uh, they're in a desert area. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And um, there's a, there was supposed to be this really long, drawn-out combat sequence where this yes. guy with a scimitar comes around, flings a scimitar, and does this like really dramatic, prepare-to-fight motion. And they were supposed to be. They were scripted out to be a really long, drawn-out combat scene. But Harrison Ford had dysentery. Yes. <laughs> he had to shit real bad. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't so want to. The guy do comes that. out and does all his weapon flourishes, and, and, and Indy just pulls out a gun, shoots him, and moves on. <laughs> and you can even tell at that point, Harrison looks like he looks like shit. He is oh, tired. Yeah. He is done. <laughs> and so, so Spielberg, being behind the camera and seeing this happen, goes, "You know what? Let's keep, keep it." it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i mean so uh, like, yeah obviously it depends on it depends on uh it depends on format it depends on what i'm i'm assuming we are talking about some kind of a narrative story not gaming but some kind of narrative story that has already been released and then you have to figure out what to do with it mm-hmm. the obvious yeah. example of what the, when this happens and fixing it is comic books because uh-huh. comic books deal with this all the time because it is a the definition of long form storytelling. Yep. Um, uh, where you go through several different writers and some writer might come on and completely not rem- not realize what's going on with certain things. There is a very ridiculous, very famous story of one of the most uh, <clears throat> well known X Men character, Psylocke. Now, I'm not going to get into Psylocke's history, but... Because we don't have time for that amount of trauma. We don't have time for that, and there are, the, there are so many issues. But the, 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 as short as I can boil it down is, at one point, Elizabeth Braddock, British, British mutant telepath, ended up in an, having the body of an Asian ninja. 
Because reasons. Because X-Men and telepath. X-Men. So this happened. And at uh, uh, at one point a while later, uh, a a uh, a new writer came on the books, Fabian Nicieta, who is a stellar writer. I really, really like his work. But he was not familiar with this character's history and wrote an entirely new, somewhat conflicting explanation that brought the mind from the Asian ninja back in Betsy Braddock's English body. Now, ignoring the unpacking of all of the thematic issues there. Uh, <laughs> ignoring the literal whitewashing. The literal whitewashing. Yep. Um, uh, and, and and the fact that it, it gets worse. Believe me, it gets worse. But, I mean, it's um, comics, it always does. I was going to say, X-Men, don't worry, How it gets that, worse. The way that you resolve it, there's one or two ways that <clears throat> comics typically resolves this. There is either the sometimes unfairly dreaded retcon, where you come up with some explanation for what happened that 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 was always the case but you the readers and characters didn't know it until then or just completely rewrites it out of continuity um or which is a way to do it it is probably the easiest way despite how convoluted it gets sometimes uh-huh. um it's also can be somewhat lazy the more difficult, riskier, but more rewarding thing to do with it is to find some way to resolve your mistake moving forward in the storyline. Um, it, it, going back to, to, to this whole character, the, these characters specifically, and the reason that I brought this up is recently they managed to... I, I'm positing that putting Brady... Betsy Braddock and Quanin's body was a terrible, terrible choice for many reasons. But the most recent writer on, on I don't remember which X-Men book it is that she's in. I think it's a, a, it doesn't matter. Blue, gold, chartreuse, whatever. Um, had the character <laughs> managed to restore the character in a way that sure is a little bit goofy, but it but but it made sense within the context of the Marvel universe. Restored the character to the appropriate to the appropriate body, and managed to undo a ton of narrative, thematic, sociological, <laughs> etc. Issues. So many of the issues and problems that make that made it really difficult for people who really like that character to express their appreciation of that character for many years. Um, so, so yeah, you can either go behind and, and, and sort of sneak to it, or you can try to come up with some way that makes sense within your world. And let's be honest, with what we're talking about in terms of critical role, in other words, we're talking about worlds that are inherently, inherently fantastical. Um, so that gives you a multitude of potential options. You come up with some way to resolve the issue. In forward without undoing what's behind. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel like a lot of times this is much more the the types of mistakes and problems that that kind of rise as you you engage in long form storytelling um, can be <clears throat> varied in their nature. You know, um, forgetting a detail or uh, you know a a, a brief descriptive fact that was established multiple episodes ago that is you know for the first time in a while being re-referenced that sort of thing is is probably your simplest level of continuity Mm -hmm. then you get into sort of like the star trek problem uh because that's the series to me that exhibits it the most prevalently where you know they come up with a solution to the problem of the week and there's no reason they couldn't use that solution again but that would make many of the future conflicts they will face much simpler and less threatening and the you know yeah and we've talked about we've talked about those those sort of things before you know right right you know where you know and and if you've got a gun then many problems start to look like a target um and that's that's an entirely different uh conclusion but and i feel like for for things of this nature where um you know you have information that is either <clears throat> conflicting or conflicting around the table or that is just not adequately engaged with by individuals doing the storytelling those can be a little more convoluted to deal with, but it's something to consider, um, especially if you're going to be the type of individual who engages in in narrative for any any period of time or with any regularity. Is how you know you getting knowing different ways to get yourself out of a corner you've painted yourself into is always highly advisable in my opinion um and john you can back me up on this because you've had even more theater experience than i have is you 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 figure out ways to keep the show moving even when somebody drops a line the um yeah that i, I do have a lot I, interestingly a lot of specific experience fixing the shows <laughs> on stage um, <laughs> The, the the one that I the one that that I that I count back to most often actually because it's sort of an example of how do you fix something that couldn't have been avoided in in really it was sort of a, a freak accident kind of kind of problem. Um, we were doing Romeo and Juliet, and I was the fight choreographer for Romeo and Juliet, um, and. In the middle, of, I was playing Tybalt, and I was in the middle of the Tybalt fight in, like, in the middle of the show, Tybalt fighting with Mercutio. Um, and in the middle of the Tybalt-Mercutio fight, Mercutio comes around with his sword, as we have practiced many times before, and had done many times, this was like the, this was like the second weekend of a three-weekend show. And for whatever reason, at that particular point, the foil that I was using broke in the middle of the choreography and didn't just like didn't just like the tip broke off or anything the blade went into the back wall actually stuck into the set 
and I was left holding a hilt and a and a, a bowl guard that was just falling off the hilt. He, he the, the 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 blade. And for those of you not familiar with the plot of of Romeo and Juliet, during Tib- this scene, it's Tib- fairly important for Tybalt to have a functional weapon. Tybalt yes. wins this fight, uh, right? <laughs> to be clear, it's really hard for Tybalt to murder Mercutio <laughs> when he doesn't have a pointy thing. So I'm standing, I'm standing there, and everybody is doing the same thing right now, i.e. staring at my hand, because the hand is no longer covered by a guard because the bowl cup falls off and just hits the ground. And you know in movies, whenever like a plate hits the ground and it does that, that ping, and it's like shimmer, it like shimmies for a long time. It did that. <laughs> it was a perfect example. If I had a, if I had a mic on, we could have recorded the sound effect. We did a perfect uh, cut of that sound effect. Um, and so, how do you fix that mistake of Tybalt no longer having a sword? Of the choreography having been completely thrown out the window now, and I'm staring across at my fellow actor playing Mercutio, a man who has never broken character once in his entire life, now staring at me like a three-year-old child who has no idea what to do. (laughs) Completely, his character is gone. Mercutio is nowhere to be found. It is just- Shakespeare, ladies and gentlemen. Every um, time you tell this story, I just go back to remembering getting brained in the head by a by, by a sword when I was doing a. Uh, it was it was uh, Hamlet and uh, that whole fight. Oh yeah. So, in in theater, you do what your adrenaline tells you to do. Yep. <laughs> and I I have never been this quick on my feet before. I drop the hilt, go, excuse me one moment, in my loudest, well, in, in, in like my, my, my in-character voice in Tybalt, excuse me a moment, and step over to one of the guards watching the fight, reach over, I'm going to borrow this now, grab, his, grab the hilt of his sword, draw it off of his belt, go Amazing. back to place, and then shall we continue? And we continue the fight. <laughs> Yay, back up. When the entire entire stage and audience had no idea how to react. It's one of those, I don't know if if you've ever seen uh, uh, GIFs on the internet where the entire frame is frozen except for one character in the GIF. And so so, it was basically one of those. Time had stopped except for me. And then when I got back in spot, it resumed, and we continued, and the show was great, and that was our best show of the three weekends. Uh, but yeah, it's there are you you have you have to figure out, and and oftentimes it's fairly obvious if you're in if you're in the moment in the, as an actor, at least if you're in the moment in in character, it's fairly obvious what should happen next because you're there, you're at that moment in time, and like, oh well, if I was actually Tybalt in this situation, what would I do? Would I I'd get my I would ass, get another, my sword. ass <laughs> another sword? <laughs> Look, there's two right over there. I only need one. Crap. <laughs> um, so, and so, so finding I I find, I find in in narrative storytelling, especially in in almost every example of narrative, 
you figure out what is the most what's the most common sense thing to happen next mm-hmm. like what can even in fantastical worlds like critical role in, in Marvel comics okay somebody fucked up here and put the wrong mind back in the wrong body okay <laughs> so what if if that were to actually happen what would this character do next Yes. They would want to go mm-hmm. back to their real body. Okay, well, how, you know, and you... you, you how do we get out. them you, there? You, you know, right. Yeah. You, you, you course correct and move on. I um, mean, it's... It, as, a, uh, as, as a pre-addendum to that, first of all, you figure out what... Where do you want the story to go from here? Yeah. How do you... How, how specifically do you want to fix this mistake? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then how does the character do that? You, yeah. you find you find that internal logic and consistency. That is that is the most important part of any narrative that you have that internal consistency. Because if yep. without the internal consistency, this is just a bunch of random noise and words. Right. Um, it's the difference between I know people like I know that there are wrestling fans out there who will say that. The, who will say that my argument is invalid here, but it is the difference between WWE storytelling and WCW storytelling. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, WWE does it wrong a lot. But in general, there's a surprising amount of continuity there. But at least they do it wrong in the same way each time. Exactly. (laughs) Whereas WCW and Impact, well, not any more Impact, but old Impacts, TNA Impact, basically made it up as they went went along and never thought, well, what about this contradicting this? And and to bring it back, that's also the difference between D&D, playing D&D, and playing pretend in your backyard. Is yeah. that there is in D and D there has to be some internal consistency, whether yep. it's and that's whether it's the rule set that you're using, any house rules that you're making, they just have to maintain consistency. So if if I house if I as a GM house rule how you know pulling somebody away from combat works, then that has to work the same way for everybody, and I have to mm-hmm. maintain that internal consistency. Right. And in fact, that's, that's actually, I can relate a personal one that some, that, that some of our listeners may be familiar with. Eberron. Now, when I started the, when I started the Final Truth Films Eberron game, this was with the exception of a home game that I had been just barely starting off with. <clears throat> my first game running or playing in Eberron in a very long time. Um, so I got a lot and still do occasionally, but particularly on got a lot of the details of Keith Baker's very dense and fascinating, but, but very, very detailed, uh, um, uh, a setting quote unquote wrong as according to, to, to the way the books went. And I recognize that. But what you do is you don't go back and then say, okay, well, no, that never happened. The way that you move forward is just like you said. Okay, this is the way it is from now on in my world. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if it's something I'm not comfortable with, okay, this is the way it says up to this point. How do I get it back? Who kills who in 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 sort of the side plot stuff to bring it back to where it needs to be? Yeah, and and that's honestly one of my favorite things about fiction because aside from your internal laws of consistency, everything else is infinitely malleable. Yep. You know, so it, and and there's a fine line to be trod on, you know, for instance, establishing the rules for the way magic works in your world, figuring out that those rules are either too loose or too restrictive, and then figuring out, all right, so what sort of events could transpire to change these? Right. Because an audience will forgive changing the rules as long as there's a good reason or a or a visible train of events that justifies it. Well, part of the audience. A, a percentage part of the audience. audience will. Some, most some, of the audience. Most will. of the audience will. Right. Um and when you do that, as long as you change the rules by following the rules, you're still in pretty safe territory. Yeah. Yeah, you can't just you can't just yell GM fiat at the top of your lungs until people stop being upset with you. <laughs> right. It's, it's yeah. the difference between something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which makes some definite changes but stays consistent, and Transformers, <laughs> which is Michael Bay sticking his fingers in his ears saying, la, 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 la. Low angle shots and 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 copying and pasting my own shots from other films <laughs> give me money <laughs> now to be fair to michael bay which is a phrase don't that i don't frequently bay. use why would you be fair to michael bay to be fair to michael bay hollywood lets him do that you're okay you are right <laughs> you are absolutely right paramount hollywood doesn't have to let him, him to get away with it right but they're not willing to tell him no, so he Hollywood, has no only, motivation to stop. Not only does Hollywood let him do it, but it makes him money. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood. that's why Hollywood lets him do it, because yeah. ultimately they know that he can do it. And at least up until five, I think, was the first to lose money. Um, They were still churning out truckloads of money. Yep. So anyway, so if you're Mocking going to be a fighting. shitty, if you're going to be a shitty storyteller, at least do it in a profitable way. So Fox Mocking is fighting Purple Worm. <laughs> no, that's not that's that's not the lesson. <laughs> if you're good at something, never do it for free. Even being a shitty storyteller. <laughs> then you're not good at it. You're being shitty at it. <laughs> This is a rabbit hole that has no bottom. So we're going to go back to Vox Machina fighting yes, Purple Worm. Vox Machina. <laughs> so they fight a Purple Worm. Then a Blue Worm shows up. Frostworm. Frostworm. That's around the time when 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 Keyleth turns everybody into mist. Yes. Uh, and determines that, uh, to which the party goes, well, now we can't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Keyleth is said in the game. 
Um, they eventually resolve that particular problem, deal with the two worms, and find themselves in uh, in this dragon in this dragon's lair that has been attacked by purple worms, and they discover uh, that the owner of the house, I believe it was here where they discovered the owner of the house, or was it back on the other side of the teleporting? Sorry. No, it was here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here is where they frozen in the wall. This, yeah, they discovered the owner of the house frozen in the wall. They may have discovered that at the end of last episode, but the owner of the house is frozen in the wall in this lair. Um, they also determine that this lair is in a mountain range. A distance away from Iman as one as they step out into a sort of a balcony area and overlook. Um, and then they also discover that, oh yeah, there's more worms coming as seismic activity continues to happen and a bigger purple worm appears uh, in the lair. <laughs> the biggest purplest worm? The biggest and purplest of worms. Uh, so they, they very quickly... Oh, that sounds like a really, really bad sexual euphemism. Oh yeah, no, that's straight that that that's the D&D version of Cards Against Humanity. Hmm. Yep. Uh so they 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 gather what money they can and frantically teleport the fuck out. Yep. yep. Ending up back in the in the house of General Creek. It's amazing how often that grab what you can and then teleport the fuck out becomes a very very habitual mechanic for many D&D groups. It's almost like it's how GMs prevent players from acquiring the entirety of a dragon's horde and yep, it's like hey you guys can loot shit but something will come eat you eventually. So, hmm? you know, <laughs> weigh your costs. <laughs> But uh, they return back to the to the house and begin discussing what they need to do next. Keyleth and Ve- Keyleth remains confused about why they're even here in the first place. Echoing the response from some of the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, a bard told us to. That's not a good reason. <laughs> Um, and they determined that they determined that the best course of action is probably going to be to inform Emperor Uriel that this house is problematic and to seal it off. They argue for about thirty minutes about that, but eventually they agree that they're all saying the same thing, and that Keyleth is confused. Yeah. Um, well, and and I think the that for me anyway, the humorous part of that discussion is that. Everybody is saying the same thing. The I feel like the actual underlying conflict is that nobody talked about was, okay, but are you saying this because you think it's the right thing to do? Or are you saying this because you're a greedy fuckwad and you want to make sure nobody else fucks around with your treasure trove that you're apparently potentially going to come back and try and continue to loot? It, it is true, because that is never actually acknowledged or addressed. It's never really acknowledged or explained, right. And, and I think that there was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Subtext, guys. Subtext is cool. It is. And useful. Uh, All of a sudden, while they're having this conversation, Grog freaks the fuck out and runs outside. The party follows. Uh, It is determined that the reason Grog freaked the fuck out is because he heard the voice of that skull they had been investigating the day before, or not the day before, the last episode, uh, talking to him, telling him to get the fuck out. And, and also that it could grant wishes. And also that it could grant him a wish. Vax gets very cross with Grog. Grog threatens Vax's life. Vax leaves. Uh, 
they eventually manage to convince Grog to remove, to let go of the skull, uh, and that they are going to take it to be examined by someone who's more of a magical authority uh, than they any of them are. Uh, to Grog's chagrin, because he really wants that fucking wish. Uh, as he says, he wants that fucking wish. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Vax leaving, honestly, to me, was one of my favorite moments because it's an excellent dramatic punctuation to a conflict. Um, I I have always noticed, uh, especially in tabletop gaming, but even in in other forms of storytelling as well, it's very easy to have two entrenched points of view in an argument and neither one is able to maneuver or or out uh out position themselves Mm -hmm. either through emotional appeal or rationale or logic or anything and so it just becomes this cycle of I say point A you say point B I retort with point C you restate point B I you know and it's just back and forth and back and forth with no actual progress which when you have two two opposing viewpoints can be a very easy pattern to fall into but it's really shitty storytelling because narrative requires progress if there's no progress then you're not actually going anywhere um and so when this sort of interaction starts to take place a storyteller or a writer or anybody you can sort of take your hands off and just let it run its course but that's a very big risk of it just devolving into a boring he said she said he said she said whereas something like this where one side says all right both sides of the conflict have been clearly stated so the conflict is present in the mind of the audience because for me when you're when you're telling a story audience has to be considered very strongly maybe not above all else but very very strongly if the conflict is already present in the mind of the audience the point of the scene has probably been achieved unless you need the conflict to be resolved right now yeah but but that's fairly uncommon that the moment a conflict comes up it also has to be resolved because conflict is good for establishing tension but tension needs a duration in order to have a good effect before its eventual resolution. So if the conflict is present in the mind of the audience, you can step away and do something else now. It'll it, It's where it needs to be. Belaboring to, the point is a very quick way to lose your audience. Exactly. Um, so having Vax just be like, all right, I'm out. You know, nothing's decided. The conflict is still there. The tension is still very much vibrating in the in the consensus of the 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 consciousness of whoever's watching and that's an excellent place to leave it for now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and typically you'll see that you see that or play out that way a lot in uh on tv and film and and in uh written fiction as well by Two people will be in the middle of an argument, and it won't be just that one of them walks away. Mm-mm. They'll be in the middle of an argument, and perhaps it might have been resolved at that point, or they would have been arguing forever, but 
than uh, a, a an army a, a squadron of stormtroopers shows up, right. or the the dragon rears its head from where it's been the whole time, or some kind of sudden conflict forces the, something with a level of urgency that overrides their debate mm -hmm. over you know comes in and causes it to causes them to have to put it on hold which like jack says is good because that kind of tension is what brings out character and drives um drives storyline forward in interesting ways yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and so and for me that is that is one of my favorite ways to watch a talented game master or or storyteller ply their craft is knowing how long to let a table argument or a table conflict go on <clears throat> before you interrupt it and the skill and and precision of how you interrupt it and with what I have nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> other than other than that, occasionally uh, in in more modern uh, narratives, uh, oftentimes, uh, in order to end an argument when the audience is watching it, they will rather than removing either of the people arguing because it seems reasonable that they would just continue arguing, the audience leaves along with another character of some kind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Change change the scene. Or yeah. Or even if a, another character doesn't leave, it just goes to some other aspect of the plot. And they they right. they um, like you'll you'll, the B, you'll have a character. If the B plot is an argument, go back to the A plot. Yeah, mm -hmm. you'll have a character leaving the room while the people continue to argue, and you'll hear the remnants of the argument going in circles in the background. And it's yep. it's a really good way to emphasize that it's understood that this argument is going to go on for a while. Right. Well, Giles and Buffy yell at each other. We then cut across Sunnydale to where Willow is investigating X. Right. Yeah. Something or 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 we continue following Bradley Whitford throughout the White House as arguments just happen around. Him. <laughs> yep. Um, and and he simply enters a room, says, I don't have time for this, and goes into the next room that has something else he doesn't have time for. Bradley Whitford is a goddamn national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, they, Vax leaves, and the party just has a, has a brief discussion, I say brief, has a discussion about... <laughs> about what to do uh, with the skull. Uh, and eventually, eventually deciding that, yeah, they're going to take it to somebody who knows better than them and have them look at it, probably in Whitestone. They're going to do that tomorrow. In the meantime, they're going to leave the skull locked up in Skull, where nobody can get at it. Uh, so they split off. Half of them go back to Grayskull Keep. The other half go to the other half, and by the other half, I mean Vex and Scanlan go back to inform Emperor Uriel of the issue. Yep. Uh, they get to the castle and inform the guard, and 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 uh, the guard asks, "Do you have any business with the emperor?" And they say, "No," because why be honest with the guards? Uh, 
<laughs> but They're he will have adventurers lying when you don't even have to. He will have business with us when you tell him we're here. Rather than just saying, yes, we have business with him, can you let us through? I, this is one of those instances where uh, players' tendencies to overcomplicate their own fucking situations just really amuses me more than mm -hmm. anything else. And it happens a lot, especially in our games, especially in games that I run, you fuckers, like to overcomplicate your own scenes so much. Whoa. Oh, <laughs> let's not pretend that it is just limited to your game. <clears throat> well, well, okay, I, said, I said our games, especially ones that I run. Not limited see, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing in my mind, all right? Adventurer, most of these games start around the adventuring party, and the adventuring party almost always finds themselves starting out in a very underprivileged context, where they literally have to fight and scrabble for every scrap of attention or level of trust or whatever that and then they get to the point where they've made a name for themselves they've you know progressed they've climbed a bit of a social ladder they have some clout now i think as 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 tellison puts it in in this episode but the players are still stuck in that starting out mindset so as far as they're concerned they still have to con their way into everything yep it's fair it's fair Right. Um, and it, and it can be very difficult to pull pull the people out of the inertia because you know sure for the adventurers this is their entire existence for us it's three hours once a week and the uh, so so <laughs> they 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 go this roundabout way of telling the guard that they need to speak with Emperor Uriel. The guard goes away, comes back, says that Emperor Uriel is busy and won't be able to talk to them right now. Um, they don't introduce themselves either. They just approach. Um, when the guard gets back, Scanlan says, oh, you don't need to worry about it. Another guard came by while you were gone, so we were good to go in. Convincing this, this poor guard to contradict the orders he was just given by the Emperor of the Kingdom. Or the, the Emperor of Teladore. Uh, and so they get taken in to meet with Uriel, who seems very confused, but asks what they want who is also in the middle of having an argument of some kind uh, with other members of the Council of Tal'Dorei, or Council of Amon. Um, they explain the situation, and after getting done, uh, are asked to leave, which they do, only for Scanlan to then duck away, turn into a fly, and try to go back in. At which point, Scanlan learns that, you know what, maybe there are other people in the world that know magic exists. As he gets into the throne room as a fly, runs afoul of a dispel magic trap, and is dumped on the ground in plain view for all, for all as himself again. Because, you know, best laid plans. You know, yep. it, it's almost like organizations might have plans in place in case some adventurers who are so far up their own asses they can't see daylight decide that they know better than everyone else. Well, and also, you know, given the fact that the Emperor was recently co-opted by a necromancer and her vampire husband. Yeah. Maybe maybe re-upping that magical security suite 
makes a level of tactical sense from a, you know, political. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So Scanlan gets kicked out again. Fortunately, being fortunately, the fact that Scanlan is on the council of uh, of uh, Iman as well, keeping him from getting arrested. <laughs> ah, and they return to uh, to Castle Grayskull, finding that Doctor Dranzel's troop is not there anymore, uh, and n- neither is Vax. But they're less concerned about that right now. Um. They discover that uh, Kaylee has apparently been arrested for starting a bar fight of some kind, or participating in a bar fight of some kind, and is being held at the stockades. And that the remaining bits, uh, the remaining uh, group of Doctor Transel's troop, aside from uh, the drummer, his name starts with a Z, and whose name I've forgotten because he's the drummer. Yeah, I was gonna um, say everybody just treats him as the drummer. He's the drummer. So it's all good. <laughs> Uh, uh, is the only one left behind to inform them that there was trouble down at Stockades. At which point, Scanlan reveals under duress that uh, Kaylee is his daughter. Uh, And there is a whole lot of basically everything we said last week being said in game to Scanlan of you almost slept with your daughter? Etc, etc, etc. Um... And and after which after which uh, Scanlan decides that he's going to go help out, and he elicits he elects to take uh, Percival and Keyleth along with him to go and help out. After Percival and Keyleth have previously hidden the skull in uh, Percival's workshop, and then informed uh, when asked about it, informed uh, the rest of the group that it was there and hidden and locked away. So, they go to the stockade. Once there, they find the rest of Dr. Dranzel's troop outside, waiting uh, for only one of them was let in at a time. <laughs> and they're informed that Dr. Dranzel... law enforcement ain't dumb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're informed that Dr. Dranzel is inside arguing the case, and that seems that Kaylee has made a bit of a mess of things. Uh, the group pull aside and, you know, begin planning amongst themselves what to do. Scanlan is sort of wanting to use subterfuge to get in and and pick the locks and break Kaylee out and and uh, to which Percy responds, you have clout now, why don't we just use clout and just walk in and see if we can't talk and resolve the situation like normal fucking adults. Which scares and confuses Scanlan. <laughs> <laughs> but they decide that Keyleth will hang back just in case um, and Percival and uh, Scanlan will enter in and see at which point we are treated to the glory of uh, Talos and Jaffe acting like a noble priss um, it's, it's a, I love this sequence because it's got a very farcical tone to it, which is not something you get to see a lot of. No, it's, it's especially in tabletop gaming. It's very, it felt very, um, why are there, why is the name of the sketch comedy, British sketch comedy legends skipping out of my brain right now? Monty Python? Thank you. It felt very Monty (laughs) Python. Like, at least Percy's presentation did. 
Just this very, oh, yeah. who are you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? Who are you? A performer? Okay, leave. Gods, right. squat the performer out. <laughs> just, just very matter of fact, but what the fuck at the same time. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was a glorious performance. Definitely yeah, the it, highlight it, of the episode for me, at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it had a very importance of being earnest, Charlie's aunt kind of, yeah. Just Percy comes in and begins act behaving like the worst nobility you can possibly imagine, referring to Scanlan as performer. Uh, right. <laughs> ushering Dr. Dranzel out as if he's a piece of unwanted filth on the floor. Um... And just sort of generally making the situation worse for Scanlan. <laughs> what we like to call weaponized privilege. Yes. Uh, uh, there is a comment made actually outside before they go in saying using your clout to get what you want. Keyleth actually makes the comment that that's the most privileged. That's the most privileged thing you've ever said. To which Percy <laughs> responds, that's the most privileged thing you've ever heard me say. <laughs> Which is a great little self-awareness bit there. Um, it's actually quite fascinating for me, at least, because if you extrapolate out what it means to be nobility, Talizin is kind of talking from experience. Oh, yeah. In this uh-huh. in this particular area and in this particular character, because he comes from Hollywood royalty. Like, he, yes. he, he is, from a, he is mm-hmm. from a prominent acting family. And thus has sort of not the exact way a medieval noble would in a fantasy setting, but sort of has had that experience of having that using your clout to get what you want and and sort of being in a position where you could use this kind of language and behave this kind of way and not have the repercussions normal people would, would have from that. And so it's, it's a very interesting sort of mirror that we're seeing here and that we have seen uh, in, in other instances where of, of him playing Percival, uh, which I think is part of why I enjoy the scene so much. It's it, 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 as much as it feels farcical, it's very real or very mm-hmm. honest, I should say. Yeah. Which I, I have always maintained that the best farces are. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So in midway through bossing this warden around and getting nowhere with it, Absolutely nowhere with it. They discovered that Kaylee is responsible for about 700 gold worth of damages. Which they have, but not on them. They ask if they'll take a check. To which the warden laughs in their face, basically. Um, and and uh, uh, Scanlan, after having pulled aside Percival and saying, this isn't kind of what I was expecting. You're just doing this to get back at me for throwing your gun in acid, aren't you? And Percival just, you know, uh, uh, making the remark that you chose, that, that, that Scanlan chose very poorly when he chose Percival to help him deal with the situation. Um, eventually, Scanlan just hauls off and punches Percy in the face, dealing less damage than Grog dealt when he flicked Vax in the nuts with one finger. Um, <laughs> punching Percy in the face twice, uh, and gets hauled off into a jail cell next to Kaylee. Percival leaves uh, after having, you know, over their ring of over their earrings of sound informed 
uh, Scanlan that he probably shouldn't do anything to escape until nightfall. There's a heartwarming, there's a heartwarming reunion between Scanlan and Kaylee. They have a, a long, heartfelt discussion before Scanlan dimension doors both him and Kaylee out of the jail cell. Informing, like you do, informing person yep. that he didn't wait until nightfall. Uh, but it's okay. That'll be their le- the least of their concerns. For- the party right. leaves. The party leaves very <laughs> rapidly. Keyleth going, hey guys, I'm glad I was here to help. <laughs> Having spent the entire scene outside. <laughs> and they return to Castle Grayskull. Dr. Dranzel and crew leave Castle Grayskull and... Um, Taking most of the silverware with them. Which the party discover shortly thereafter. uh, They cleaned the castle out of about 300 gold worth of stuff. And when asked why uh, their head guard didn't see it happening, Mercer had the best response of, you hired one, you had one guy sitting there watching eight people. Right. (laughs) He can only see so much. (laughs) Jared's good, but there are limits. You need to think things through before you <laughs> make plans. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. They rest for the night. In the middle of the night, Grog sneaks down to the workshop and bends a great sword trying to open the door. <laughs> Barbarian lockpicking at its finest. Realizing <laughs> that he has neither the strength currently, nor the utility to pick the lock or break through the door. He goes back to bed. In the morning, it's it's, it's, it's acknowledged that Vax didn't come home last night. And as they first give their, uh, Scanlan gives the groundskeeper, or their their maid, cook, housekeeper, um, money to go get fresh silverware and pots and cooking utensils, after which they decide that they are go they determine that they're going to have to go looking for Vax. As they're getting ready to leave to go look for Vax, um uh what's what's his name? Uh Seeker Assume. Seeker Assume, thank you. Seeker Assume shows up. I don't know why I keep forgetting names of the millions of NPCs that are in the show. Possibly because there's millions How of NPCs. Dare you? In the show. And possibly also because there's millions of NPCs in my head for my own games. Point. That's um, why mine are all named Simon. <laughs> you did have several people named Simon. I did. Still do. Um. Assume appears and informs them that. Uh, there is a very urgent meeting that they're going to be having in the evening that they, uh, they as members of the Council of Amont, have been invited to uh, come to. This meeting called by Emperor Uriel. Uh, Vex tries to read more into it and pry into what the argument that they did, were unable to hear anything about uh, was about, and assume basically says, it's none of your concern, don't worry about it. Uh, and as they thank him for the information, turn and turn back, he's gone, because he is a sneaky motherfucker. Yes, he is. The spy master of Ramon, after all. The party leaves and attempts to find Vax. Keyleth almost does. Keyleth sort of spots him uh, ducking into an alleyway and calls after him, but uh, Vax lets her know that he doesn't want to talk right now, and 
she lets him go as other members of the party show up and ask if she found him. She says no, and they continue on their search. Vax, in fact, uh, goes back to the keep and waits in his sister's room while they're out looking for him. Eventually, they return back to Castle Greyskull, and Vax goes to her room and finds Vax sitting there. And they have a discussion, wherein Vax basically explains that he doesn't know what the fuck they're doing anymore. Why they're there. Why they're doing anything that they're doing. And what their purpose is in life. Vax discovers existentialism. Yep, pretty much. A little bit. Uh, and also, and also realizes they don't have any plot hooks to chase right now. Don't which worry. Is, which is sort of the, the crux of player character existentialism, really, is when, when you've run out I of mean, plot hooks to chase. Yes, but also I think that this was a very organic thing for Vax. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, he's been going through a lot of shit as of late. Um, he's going to continue going through shit for the foreseeable future. <laughs> and perhaps the unforeseeable future. Um, so it, it was, it was, it's an interesting moment. And it's something that I really like because a lot of times you, it is a trait that you see often in, uh, in narrative fiction and is often not portrayed um examples of people like i mean i feel like the perfect example of this is the is the um uh reforming vampire trope of the vampire who used to be evil and now isn't and is full of angst and doesn't really know what to do and that sort of thing, which can be done very, very poorly. There are a couple of examples where it's done very well. Um, but, but generally, I think when this, when this sort of type of role, you see it in a lot of fantasy as well. Uh, uh, we haven't pounded we we haven't pounded on him today, so let me just bring up Dristor. <laughs> um, Fucking Christ! I mean, am I wrong though? No, you're not. He's uh, one of the most. It's irritating. just that that's my knee jerk reaction to whenever yeah. somebody says Doerden, right? <laughs> um, one of you mean, the. Like, you mean Fucking Christ! <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. One of the most frustrating things, even during the, the, the better book, the first few books, um, one of the most frustrating things about Trist is that in addition, in, in when you're not getting either him being the absolute best at everything um, or those... <clears throat> Really good moments, which are moments of real connection, interesting character connection between him and other characters, whether it's his friends, uh, uh, Artemis, whoever it is. Much of the rest of the books are just him wallowing 
in the most bullshitty angst that you can imagine. Uh-huh. Um, so wh- when it makes sense to characters and it's portrayed really well the way that, and that's that's the thing with Driss is to me yeah some of it is earned obviously he's a good he's an, he's a good drow in a world where drow are evil and terrible and so he deals with a lot of suspicion and systemic and, racism and things like that <laughs> right which I if mean, they, systemic if they... racism in a world where the black elves are canonically evil as a race oh, so yeah. let's let's just throw that out there but yeah racism which which, but... which has its own level of problematic aspects but sure keep going racism in Faerun isn't just limited to drow elves though no it's not mm-hmm. absolutely it's not um and he, you know he's 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 an outsider to both worlds and 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 that sort of thing so there are some legitimate reasons for it but they're also and i think that's why it becomes more pronounced later on in the books when it's clear Salvatore has no real storyline left, but these books make him lots of money. So he keeps going back to that well. Right. Yeah, because um, like I have no problem with Drizzt when he's having existential angst and emotional trauma regarding the fact that he's an outsider mm-hmm. who is systematically frequently shunned, with the exception of his few close friends. Dude, you've got a few close friends what are you weeping about? Uh, But, you know, when he's systematically shunned by the society that he actually wants to be a part of, that is a very plausible reason for angst. When he gets all angsty about the fact that he's apparently really good at murder, in a societal setting the world over, which is already established that murder is a highly marketable talent and makes you a valuable contributing member of your society. And if you're good at murder, people are going to want you around. And that is a that is a legitimately good skill to have. Yep. That is not a thing you need to have angst about. Or when you spend like much of your early the early part of your character striving at almost uh, understandably but the 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 overriding arc for him is wanting companionship wanting people to feel like he belongs to and then when he gets that the angst because he has to have angst because he's fucking dristo warden the angst switch to well i have friends but I'm going to live so much longer and they're going to die. So you're going to make some more friends. Jesus Christ, you did it once, you can do it again, motherfucker. These aren't aren't incorrect things to be sort of upset about, but it gets to the point where you're like, okay, Drist, you just kind of like being depressed. Let's be honest, you're choosing to focus. (laughs) You're Batman, buddy. You're fucking thing. Batman. <laughs> um, so, but but when it's something like this, where I think it is very germane to the character, I think it is an interesting direction to take the character. Um, and uh, spoiler for something we're going to talk about very shortly. It is a question that is very quickly resolved of what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> I mean, even if that had not been the case, I think that was an interesting way to take the take it because 
it's one in this case i think what makes it work beyond being appropriate you know being having character logic is it's one person who in a, in in a in a story where there is no main character and there are several other characters who who have very different viewpoints on it and who he can collide with and 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 have those those viewpoints collide in ways that that are interesting and meaning i just want i just want to point out because i know people listening will have noticed this and probably had similar reactions to mine the two of you just told a character who has who is canonically has depression to get over his depression he's got nothing to be depressed about uh, <laughs> wait a minute. First of all, in what book is he? In what book does he canonically have depression? Most of the latter half of the books, when he, yeah, I didn't read those. When he when after his friends begin dropping like flies, and he yeah, is legitimately the last one of like he has two of them left, is when he starts talking about I'm gonna outlive all these fuckers, not just because I'm an elf. But because I am really good at keeping myself alive. No, no, this is well before that. Like he was, he was complaining about that well before yeah, that. The one I he, specifically he was, remember he was, was positing about Caddy Bree. Well before. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the the when Caddy Bree started showing romantic interest in him, and he knew that he was attracted back, but he would go on six or seven page internal monologues about it um i just wanted to point I mean, that out there that you okay, guys said if those does, things if, if that is established late in the, later in the books that i did not read fair enough but i'm talking about before that was canonically established <laughs> yeah i'm talking like the hunter's blades sure, trilogy sure because you, yes sure because you, mm. you can't have chronic depression before it's diagnosed right no you can't but when you okay <laughs> You can, but Trist I'm literally absolutely... just being an asshole, right? I know, I know you are. But <laughs> Trist, I, I think we can all agree that the character was not written as having depression. Be uh, earlier in the books, depression and angst are two separate things. I mean. Uh... <laughs> I think he was, but that's just my reading of it. And everybody's reading of material can be really yeah. different. Oh yeah, absolutely. There, there is no correct reading of 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 novels. I just it was very funny. I would say there's a correct reading, and that is that Drist is bullshit. And you would be wrong. Uh, <laughs> it was just very funny. To I don't know. I think you're right. It was just really funny for me to hear you two basically saying that, especially knowing who you are and knowing your personal politics. It was amusing. <laughs> It's like, oh, so this is how you walk into that trap. Okay. <laughs> I mean, eh, whatever. Anyways. Uh, so, um, they, Vax has that conversation with Vax. And then they all go out to the meeting. And uh, it is revealed, a couple of them stopping at, at, uh, at, um, at um not Galadier. <laughs> That's my character. <laughs> Starts with a G. 
Gilmore. Stopping at Gilmore's. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fuck my brain. I was just going to let that one run. Gilmore's. Right? Stopping at Gilmore's, uh, Gilmore's shop. Um... Uh, to to pick up to try to pick up a few things, in which they they learn that Gilmore is also going to be going to this meeting. Uh, Grog tries to pick up some lock picks and scares uh, one of Gilmore's assistants, probably into quitting, because um, <clears throat> we never do see him again. Uh, and they continue on, and they discover that uh, Emperor Uriel has decided to dissolve the Empire of Taldore. Instead, uh, turning it into a democratic republic of some some establishment. I'm not sure what the correct governmental system it is going to become would be qualified as, but it's a council of individuals who will be sort of elected from the populace or, or chosen from the populace to lead the country as advi- as a as a council of equals rather than uh, by an emperor. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's a democracy or a republic. I was gonna say we're gonna become a republic. <clears throat> yeah, uh, one of the one of those two. Um, and as the announcement ends and people are slightly confusedly applauding, uh, the guards and uh, Vex begin to hear and notice the arrival of sounds. Everything goes to hell as a as a quartet of dragons descends upon Iman. And begins to wreak havoc, uh, destroying in large swaths uh, buildings and people uh, as a red, black, green, and white dragon just sort of land, very Pacific Rim style, on the city. Kaboom. Hmm. Uh, Which is the introduction of the Chroma Conclave. Yep. The party tries to fight the green dragon, rapidly determines that they are very outmatched, and flee. Which is the end of the episode. Uh-huh. With uh, the so, red dragon announcing with the red dragon announcing his rule over Amon and sending the other three off into different areas. The party of Vox Machina retreat rapidly through a tree and back to Castle Grayskull. Yep. Yeah, I believe specifically Amon was going to be made a parliamentary republic. Well, I it's think. not anymore. <laughs> but right now it's kind of a dictatorship yeah, it's, slash anarchy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it sort of went from a it sort of went from a uh, very authoritarian state it, currently. It, it went from an imperial state to a tyrannical dictatorship. Yes. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. But in about so, 10 minutes. Uh, can I just talk about how much how much I love the end of this? So oh, yeah, go ahead. Feel free. Like. So uh, this is something that I think a lot of people, and I swear I didn't plan this, but to go back to to go back to the person we were just talking about, I'm talking about Salvatore. I'm not talking about Jordan. Okay. Um, a lot of people tend to be very scared to do anything really drastic with their with with, with their storylines and world. Sure lives will be changed and people will die etc on a small scale but big scale the world still keeps moving and there's 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 good narrative and thematic reason for that a lot of the time yeah um 
but there's also narrative inertia. <laughs> there is an absolute narrative inertia, and there is, uh, especially, I see this a lot in D&D games, actually, where people, you're playing in someone else's sandbox, whether it is, uh, whether it is Forgotten Realms, or whether it is uh, a Dragonlance or Ebron, or the world of darkness where you're dealing with the real world mm-hmm. or mm, Marvel universe role-playing game, whatever the case may be. If you're playing any of these games, you are playing in somebody else, the world that somebody else has created. And I think there is a general hesitance to really fuck it up. Mm-hmm. And I think fucking it up is one of the, you know, do it, done well is or done not necessarily well is the raw is not the word that i wanted to use there done for the right reasons and with forethought and to serve the interests of whatever story you're wanting to say is Mm -hmm. one of the best things you can do um if in your if if in your forgotten realms game you want to, I don't know, have Elminster get murdered and not like kind of murdered the way that he usually is, but like <laughs> full on, genuinely 100% murdered. murdered. Right. Or you're one of your players. Not the type of murdered where Mistra wakes him up two weeks yeah. later. <laughs> or, or, or Mistra is another good example. If you want. Yeah. Like one of your players actually managed to come up with a plan to murder Mistra where she doesn't come back as somebody, you know, with a new persona. Right. You know, that's a big thing. I don't think the that she, she came back I, with a different persona. She just came back with an extra couple syllables. Sort of. <laughs> um, but that's a big thing. Mistra right. is, without Mistra, there's no weave. Without the weave, there's no magic. If oh, you're one of your players, yeah, yeah, there is. It's just called I mean, small plague. Yes, <laughs> and that's a whole that's a whole thing. I'm not going to attack at this moment. No, we are not getting and into there, that. And there's shadow weave and shark, <laughs> right? But, but, but still, if it has it has world world altering consequences, <clears throat> but if your player has decided to do this and you're cool with it and you think it would make a great storyline, fucking do it. I don't care, you know, or have, you know, in the world of darkness, you know, I realize that it, that it's okay, that it, that it's a little more common now that they, well, I say now, like 20 years after the fact, but after they put out the Gehenna and and all, all of the ending of the World of Darkness books, Apocalypse and Ascension and, and so on. But if you want to end the world, wake up Cain. Or if you want to wake up Cain and you figure out a way for him to wake up and help lead the world to a utopia. And it works. Fucking Don't do be it. afraid to do it. Or, yeah. or if is, you say that Kane is already awake and, you know... Or, yeah, have him is already up. awake and is has been masquerading. I've seen this storyline happen many times. It's never been done well, but I have faith that one day it will be. That Kane is wandering around masquerading as some fucking ghoul somewhere. 
or or a um, taxi driver or a taxi driver or whatever the case may be and you think you can make a great story out of it do it challenge fucking accepted is, sir that is <laughs> the thing that i loved i mean it's to be clear the, the the way that it played off of the way mercer did it and the way everybody reacted to it was pitch perfect mm-hmm. like it is one of throughout the whole of the games perhaps the biggest shining moment of critical role oh yeah in, in terms of storytelling and 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 description and, and and everything but the best thing about it for me was this was the moment that the, two things one that i realized that 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 i and every viewer on in the game realize that nobody and nothing was fucking safe in this world mhm because you always have that question are there there are those those things that the that the storyteller you know is are they going to are, do they care a little bit too much about their world basically right. or mm-hmm. this character no not the case with that um i ended and, my world too. Yeah, yes you did. <laughs> yeah, but you brought it back. Um drastically and two, <laughs> that this was a moment that that basically gave all of those pe- all of uh, those people who have been who watched the show and have always thought, you know, there are certain things you can't do in your games. That permission to do whatever the fuck you want in your game. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was yep. Such an amazing moment. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I I feel it was very well implemented. Especially, it was well implemented because your first instinct when something like that hits is to attack. Yep. All of you fuckers do that. Um, yeah. I mean, well, obviously. Yeah, attack the big attack the big thing. Oh, I only hit it once on all three of my attacks, and then it did sixty six points of damage to me that I couldn't absorb. Yeah, we are yeah. the heroes of the story. We must be the hero. Ow, ow, ow. Oh, fuck, that hurt. I'm leaving now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the heroes of the story for a later time. Run away. <laughs> I was kind of, I was kind of waiting. In, in Grand Terra, I revealed a dragon the size of mountain ranges. Um, and I was kind of waiting for someone to go, fuck it, let's attack. And just see what to see how that. To be fair, out. Jeremy missed that episode. Yes, yeah. Harry was not there because Harry absolutely would have oh, been yeah. like, "I'm gonna take that head." I, I am. I am. I am reasonably certain that Harry is not going to talk to Gwyn for at least a week. <laughs> um. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there are many ways to. I, I find that that is a way to show to your characters that there are things in this world that will kill you no matter what le- no matter what power level you th- are no matter how powerful you think that makes you mm-hmm. there is always a bigger fish mm-hmm. yep yep and it's the w- that is the way that you that you establish a a a a a, a fucking long term villain oh yeah you have them absolutely stomp the party the first time you run into them yeah and and it was it was exceptionally well conducted also because 
um, you know, that the story was not going to be well served by a death here. Right. Because you want the main dramatic moment to be the arrival and destruction caused by the initial onslaught of the conclave. You want it to be broad in scope. You don't want to narrow it down to they killed this one person. You want this to be a far-reaching mega-scale threat. So you have to be able to stomp the party without actually killing anybody in there, but to an extent that they realize, no, no, retreat is our only survivable option at this point. Because I remember watching this episode and and feeling that same sort of, you know, because because you do expect the heroes to attack. There's innocence in the crossfire. There, you know, there are people here that they are invested in. There's a level of they're going to want to make a stand and protect the victims. You won't expect them to be leading the retreat immediately, just being just noping the fuck out of there. Yep. And it was so well composed in that he gave them those moments of we're making as much of a stand as we can, but still left them just enough of an open back door that when they realize this is not a fight that we have any chance of coming out on top of. Even with sacrifice, we are not going to win this. This is this is a leave or everybody dies kind of scenario. Left them enough room to get out. Yeah. And that can be a very difficult balancing act, especially in sort of like a number crunchy mechanics type storytelling that that D&D is. You know, if you if you're writing this for for TV or in a novel, you just write it and it happens. You know, you don't have to worry about the numbers quite as much. You can fudge that. You can hand wave those things if you need to. But yeah. when it's coming down to things like dice rolls where, you know, Matt doesn't fudge and nobody else at the table does either. Um, yeah, you you have to be willing to allow for, you know, do you give yourself enough margin for error? And that can be tricky. And it was just so well done right here. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I I agree. I think it was expertly done, and the I think the biggest thing that helped was having a crowd of civilians mm-hmm. that the dragon could just annihilate. Because it was oh, we need to protect the innocents. They're not there anymore. <laughs> Very quickly, that had that 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 ended up being the case, mm-hmm. um, and just not being afraid to let your dragons dragon. And I think actually as much as as much as you've said that you guys have said or Jeremy has said I should say uh that a death wouldn't necessarily serve here. I I think that if a member of Vox Machina had died, it would have it would have been fine and would have perhaps even upped the ante a little bit more. Oh, yeah, no, it wouldn't have been like it, it wouldn't have been a bad thing if a not necessarily if a character got I just don't think it was necessary. Yeah, no, not right. not certainly not necessary, but it would not have it would not have diminished anything. No. <laughs> if someone had like if Grog had just been annihilated by the dragon right. breath. Mhm. Um, but yeah, so that's the end of Omens. That's where the episode ended up. 
with the Chroma Conclave having been established. Now, really quick, we, we do want to talk about foreshadowing because we've talked previously about how this this event was kind of foreshadowed previously. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you guys want to talk about that real quick? Uh, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. Hmm. It's the level of and this is something that um there there there's a lot to unpack just in this because this is a storyline that's been in the build since before before stream it's a home game yeah mm-hmm. this is something that's been that 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 mercer had been building to a long time and the importance and the value, uh, the the value specifically of paying off those moments, whether it was you know the original appearance of of Brimside, um, uh, a pre-stream, or whether it was the appearance of um, Thordak in the fireplane. Thank you, Thordak. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe that name was escaping me. But 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 the okay, I forgot turns- Gilmore for a minute. That's true. Yeah, yours is way worse. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, any of those moments, you know, on their own, they were cool moments. But being able to see these little things throughout and then paying it off in such a such a huge, amazing way. Not only does it result in a really great moment here, but the players and and in in this case the viewers and in the case of when you're doing narrative fiction, your readers, viewers, whatever the case may be, now attach it re it it it, it revalues those moments in the past. And and throwing out the or uh, uh, paying off these things will give moments that 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 at one point was okay. Yeah, that was that was really cool. But you don't really think of it after that. All of a sudden, you know, from 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 a creative standpoint, that's a moment that those that that those people then really love. And then from a or business stand- standpoint, that's rewatch value right there, folks. Oh yeah, yeah. Any anything that you do that makes your audience, in a good way, have to revisit what they've already watched yep. or read or 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 heard. That's that's some good foreshadow payoff oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah like just going back through doing this podcast i've seen so many bits that i hadn't it hadn't clicked the first time i watched that seeing it again and knowing what happens further on you sort of start to see unintentional and intentional foreshadowing yep um from previous things but yeah so that's that's the end of this episode We're coming back next week uh or next time with next week ish next week ish I mean, as far as the audience is aware, it's been a weekly thing until you just mentioned it. <laughs> I'm just referring to in general our habit, not <laughs> recent events. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, this is absolutely one week since the last one. Exactly, exactly one week. Uh, <laughs> Almost to the minute. One week, 
in seven days. <laughs> um, next week, uh, we are coming back with uh, episode 40 of Critical Role, which is going to be episode 41 of, of Critical Thinking. Uh, desperate measures where the party sort of has to regroup themselves after almost dying mm-hmm. to a dragon. Yep. So, uh, thank you for listening. I've been John. And I'm Jack. And I'm Jeremy. And we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>